3: is addiction of crime this is part two on Scrooper's Pips Distraction Pieces Network we're stop and search here we go This is part two, and if you are not listened to part one, then go and do that now, because it's going to make no sense without it. But I think part one has been one of the most talked about podcasts that we've done, both on the evening and on broadcast, because the feedback we've had has just been tremendous, and if you listen to it, then you, you'll understand. Because we've got Johan Hari, who's the author of Chasing the Scream, we've got Livy Haydock, who's the BBC presenter and producer, and she's just done Panorama, and we've got Tom Gash, who's the author of Criminal, The Truth About Why People Do Bad Things. The conversation just flowed. It just really went for it. And we've got audience questions in this one, which we're just going to put it out completely unedited. We're going to go for it. So that's coming up. Just a few quick shout outs. Uh, Don't forget, if you're in London on November 35th, get down to the Museum of Drugs. And if you're listening on your cast app, link, whatever, then they'll be scrolling along the bottom. So you can just click on that and find out all the details. Right. What else? I think we need to give a shout out to our social media as well, don't we? Because I never do that and I do it at the end normally. So find us on Twitter at UKLEAP, Facebook UKLEAP.org and our website UKLEAP.org as well. Right. With that all said, let's get back into part two. So is addiction a crime? Here we go. Livy you've seen the absolute extreme end of what goes on when the government gets it wrong. What is the environment like in the Philippines that's conjured the extrajudicial killings? How how have they got to that point where that makes sense to them?
2: Um, I think purely through... Duterte, I think the, I think poverty, I mean, about 40% of people in the Philippines live below the poverty line. So people want to blame something. And then Duterte, who presents himself as, uh, you know, a man of the people, but he's not. He, he's, his father was a mayor and he, he's had a very, very good upbringing, but he's taught himself to talk... Uh, down, (laughs) uh, to not talk properly and to use foul language and he appeals to the masses because he's this radical people's man and he's used drugs as the demon. He's created a monster only he can kill Um, and people are buying into that. He has over 80% popularity. People want that because he seems, he says, look, I'm going to make a big difference and the vigilante killings, he, you know, he says, I'll give you a medal. He reads out lists of names on TV of people um, to add to the kill list um, and then they end up dead. So change is happening. People are are, are seeing something is happening and I think people were so desperate, they wanted something drastic to happen. Um, but one girl actually spoke to me very well about it and she said, uh, she said... For a long time, people, uh, you know, your law-abiding citizens were scared to walk the streets in the Philippines after dark. But for once, it's the criminals who are scared to walk the streets after dark. And actually, I could see her point, but this is beyond extreme. And also, I mean, people, the killings, it's just unimaginable. It's crazy.
4: I mean, the other thing, I'm not sure if... I mean, I've read a a few reports on it, so you can tell me whether this is true. Um, But obviously, the... Capacity to correctly identify the drug dealer seems to be a little bit dubious. Um, so I'm not sure that the regular citizen is any safer. It's just that everyone is a little bit less safe walking the streets at night, which is a sort of weird sort of sort of satisfaction people are getting from it. The other thing that's really noticeable about the Philippines, which you get in a lot of, uh, developing countries is effectively we're very lucky in the UK that our police corruption is quite constrained. Um, and I've I've worked in a few places, and and there is always a bit of police corruption and prison corruption, Um, and, you know, if you go into prison and try and tell them that the UK police aren't very corrupt, they'll all beg to differ, Um, the truth is that, you know, wide-scale corruption on the scale that you see in the Philippines is not as easy here, and so you'll find that basically you'll get this sort of weird interplay between crime groups and government, where people are sort of doing very weird things where you can't work out which is which at some point in time. And so that grey area between illegal and legal is so grey and so confusing that no-one really knows what's what's going on. I
0: that, uh, I could, when sorry, Joan, was...
5: could you kind of just chip in with the, with the police corruption thing? Um, sorry to interrupt you. Um so, yeah, I think it's, it's very true that we are very confident and smug in our stable democracy in terms of the level of police corruption that we have. So it's not necessarily on people's radar. And people, the vast majority of people don't really realise that it goes on. But what I would say is that 99% of police corruption is because of the drug market. Certainly all, all of the corruption, that I, virtually all of the corruption that I've seen and come across is, is, is as a result of um, the enormous amounts of money that really can only come from the illicit drug market.
0: Neil, how is that talked about among police? Like, did you... So, is it like... Did you know that some of your colleagues were corrupt? I know you talk about this a bit in the book, but can you just explain that? I thought it was so interesting.
5: I I was completely naive to it until it was uh, right there in front of me, in my face. I mean, uh, there's a um, guy I was very, very friendly with who got sent to prison. Um, He was in the Derby drug squad, and he got caught dealing cocaine, uh, him him and another police officer. Um, And I was shocked by that. Lovely guy, um, but he liked his coke. Um, and, and that is that is often the case, because where police officers generally, with general crime, crime is either, either um, wrong in itself, clearly wrong, violence, theft from somebody, very simple themes that we can all understand, and then there is the prohibited crime of drugs. And it doesn't take quite so much to corrupt someone into a prohibited crime. And that's why, um, in, in that kind of low-level corruption, that was just because he liked the drug. But then, as the other end as well, is the is the corruption where I I came across someone who was um, who was who was actually a member of the organised crime group that I was trying to infiltrate. He was actually in my team, and again, that can only happen. He was being paid. He was paid to employ to join the police. He was actually employed to become a police officer with a you know no record. And it is generally accepted in senior police that that is that is there that goes on, um, and and basically the attitude is how can it not, with this much money involved? Yeah,
4: it's it's quite interesting that we we you, you'll never find a government policy announcement about how we're going to deal with corruption amongst staff within who work within the public service. Um, so it's very interesting. I I note that on on Spice, you know, we're cracking down on drones, and I'm like, well, how many. Drugs get into prison with drones guys i I just think there may be other sources you may want to be thinking about um, and 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 we so we don't really admit this, but again one of the things that I'm sort of obsessed with is um, this question of well so okay, what do you do about it? How can you deal with these methods of corruption and the, the truth is no one's ever tried to work it out like not really they as in people do it by people try and deal with corruption with theory and they sort of hope that it works we don't have very effective targeted mechanisms for dealing with this stuff and i think it'd be really interesting if we you know put some real attention on understanding the scale of the problem and trying to develop some solutions for it
0: i I, I remember when when i was in um when i first went to juarez just after the kind of peak of the the war for drugs there i was um my, my fixer was an amazing guy called Julian Cardona. He's the Reuters correspondent in Juarez. And the first couple of days, he kept introducing me to the families of um, uh, people who'd been murdered by the police. After a couple of days, I said, like, oh, Julian, like, this is an important part of the story, but I've got to meet people who were, families of people who were murdered by the cartels. And he just laughed and said, no, yeah, and you don't understand. They're not separate forces. When the cartels want to kill someone, they just pay the police to do it. And actually, Rosalio, the hitman for the Zetas, who I got to know, he used to go out with the police. They, he would cut off the heads and they'd dispose of the head. And I think this is partly a uh, function of what proportion of your economy is in the hands of the private trade. So if you imagine if you live on an estate in Leyland, where 5% of the economy is in the hands of armed criminal gangs, this could be a shitty estate to live on, right? In Juarez, at that point, 70%, 70% of the economy was the... Drug trade. Obviously, it's a main transit point into it was a main transit point into the United States. Well, that means that the cartels have more money than the government, right? They can pay bigger wages. And this comes back to something Tom was saying before, which I think is important. So, some people, when we talk about legalization, it's important to say legalization means different things for different drugs. Same way in London, it's legal to own um, a monkey, a dog, and a lion, but the rules are different, right? You can just go and buy a dog, monkey. I think you probably need a license, and like a lion. I'm sure they come and inspect your house and make sure you're not a lunatic, right? In the same way, legalization means different things for different drugs, right? We all know that. To say alcohol is different legally to sleeping pills, um, but the the um, I forgot what point
3: I was making. Legalization. No, uh, I'm caught up on owning a lion now. How do we sorry. do that, Ronnie?
0: I know can you can own a lion. There's a really there's a good clips on, on YouTube. on But the the um, I'm sorry, I've completely forgotten my. Obviously, tuberculosis has gone to my head really early. Who knew? Um,
4: Regulation for different drugs.
0: But yeah. uh, well, what did I say before that? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, you said, and I think it's a really important thing. So sometimes when we, when we get to the debate about legalisation, so, I'm glad this came back to me, or uh, you get to the point about legalisation, some people say, well, we have to be very wary of legalisation because you get these capitalist forces that can promote it negatively. I totally agree with that model of legalisation that I like is, well, but cannabis is the Spanish model, I've been and seen it. You have not-for-profit uh, cooperatives that you have to join, or you grow it together, you can't advertise, you can't promote. Uh, for heroin, obviously in Switzerland, it's a. I think it's actually a government monopoly that, or is it? no? Or is it, a, uh, it might actually be a big pharma company. Anyway, there's government clinics, right, that provide it. Um, but it's important to say, when some people say that's an argument against legalisation, it's worth remembering. The very worst possible capitalist forces control the drug trade today, right? I recently, a couple of months ago in Buenos Aires, met Pablo Escobar's son. Um, It was a weird experience. I met him in the children's play area of a Burger King. Um, But he's he's a interesting guy. But, you know, Pablo Escobar was not a not-for-profit, right? He was not running a cooperative, right? These are the most vicious possible capitalist forces. They are, and exactly as Livy said, they are you know, they are very interested in marketing to children. Exactly like what we were talking about, you know, they are... Ve- they are. We cannot regulate a criminal network. We can regulate a legal entity. So when sometimes people say, like, um, someone I really respect, Ed army who's a very good commentator on this, sometimes says, we can't legalise because then capitalist forces will control it. Even in the worst-case scenario, which I would very much fight to resist, that it was controlled by, you know, the equivalent to Smirnoff... Um, Sminoff is a lot better than the Zetas, right? Sminoff is a lot better than the Crips and the Bloods. Even the worst form of legalization, ca- capitalist legalisation is better than headchoppers, which is what we have now.
3: Right, I think it's a good time to start queuing people up for questions. Uh, so if you've got a question, make sure it's queued up. Great, we've got one down here. This is the most hands-off we've ever been in hosting an, an event. <laughs> like, we can just wind up and let you guys go. <laughs> so I want to speak one more time to, to each one of you on... on... <laughs> If you're all right, Johan, this is sounding terrible now. So this might be the last time we see Johan. So we're going to go to to Livy. Um, quick, we mentioned drones being um, and what's going on. That was featured in one of your films uh, of how to get drugs into prison, um, and it was pretty damn easy, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, okay. um, yeah.
2: No. The the. M- Biggest. Well, there are so many different routes. Drones was actually, like you said, one of the smallest. That was like that was the one we really wanted to find um, because actually the routes they were getting in it was just embarrassingly easy. Um, and again, corruption of staff. And then you look at the way staff are accrued and what they're paid, um, and the incentive to triple your wage a week, bringing in mobile phones, SIM cards, um, drugs. Then you've got the visitors. You've got mules. You've got. There's just so many. You can just throw them over the fences. Um, it's ridiculously easy to get drugs into prisons
4: um, it's scary most of the public don't know that um, I mean, like, most of the public don't know that we have drug free wings in our prisons you know that, that whole concept for lots of people is completely confusing the idea that you have to have a special wing for the people who aren't on drugs um, because it's so easy to get hold of drugs and they need to be protected from the surfeit of drugs that are flowing around their prisons
0: It's really worth underscoring, right? The official position of our government is that we are going to be able to keep drugs out of Britain and we can't keep them out of our prisons where we pay people to walk around the fucking perimeter the whole time, right? It gives you some sense. I think it really exposes something really fundamental about the nature of the war on drugs, that the most totalitarian control you can have in a democratic society is over prisoners, right? Rightly, there are people who should be in prison. Um, And we can't keep drugs out of there, Right? So we never... It exposes the farce of the idea that we're going to... You know, the official UN slogan is still a drug-free world, we can do it. They can't even show me a drug-free prison.
6: Um, my question is for you, Tom. Um, you spoke about some states in America, and um, you said they've got it wrong with cannabis. Do you think they're going down the wrong path? And I wanted you to elaborate Yes, yeah, so, on that.
4: Um, So, yes, yeah, so where I think they've got it wrong is where they are doing things... I can't remember which state did this, but I've seen the packaging. Uh, you have cannabis of high THC. That's Colorado. It's Colorado, isn't it? Yeah, uh, in uh, food, basically done in gummy gummy bears, edibles. edibles, and you can't look at that. And I mean, the packaging literally looks like something that, if any of you got kids, you'd, you know, you'd have to hide from them because they they desperately want it. And so you've got the sort of approach to drugs where I would see it as driving uptake and use. And it's not that, you know, I mean, we we don't let people under 18 have alcohol. Of course, we all have alcohol under 18. But the the idea is actually that people get access to it sort of gradually before they lose their uh, you know they're a bit when they're a bit more responsible they can learn how to cope with and use the drugs sensibly And I think that where we've done it when I, what I've seen in the u.s. Worried me a bit around that just sort of targeted at children uh, driving volumes and consumption
0: yeah no, I think um, I totally agree with Tom. I would not allow the edible 's market to be legal that there was you know, the edible 's market was very small before it was like brownies basically that um, that commercialization is really problematic, and of course, in a legal trade, you can regulate it that way in terms of the psychedelics. I think it's a slightly different picture than when you present. I think you raised a really important point. Um, it's, a lot of people won't know. So basically, there was a lot of really promising research done on LSD until the mid-1960s when LSD was legal. It was given to alcoholics, dep- people with severe depression. And although the studies were not done to the kind of standard you would do today, they were pretty promising, right? And then it all stopped. And it's been re, re- then, that there was a de facto ban, and that ban has effectively been lifted. So I've actually, um, for something I'm writing, I've been interviewing in lots of different places, in, um, it, it, mainly in Baltimore, at Johns Hopkins, the people who've been doing this new psychedelics research and there's one part of it that I think is is most revealing and comes to some of the things that we've been talking about. So, a guy called Matthew Johnson and um, Roland Griffiths have been professors at Johns Hopkins, have been doing this really amazing research with smoking. So, what you do is you'd get really long-term smokers. They've been doing it for more than thirty years, and they they um, and they've tried lots of different ways to stop, and they can't. And then they they give them over three sessions across six months, I think, um, th- th- three doses of psilocybin, which is the active component in magic mushrooms. And 80% of these people stop smoking, which is really, would make it by far the most successful smoking cessation tool in the world. But there's a little subset of that that I think is so revealing, and, and you're right about. They looked at, well, why did it work for some people and not others? And basically, when you take psilocybin, some of you will know, you, most people have a kind of spiritual experience. They feel profoundly connected to the rest of the world, to nature, to the universe, the intensity of your spiritual experience when you use that drug, when you use psilocybin, correlated exactly with the success rate. But whether you stop, whether you cut back your smoking, whether you stopped, all sorts of other positive effects, which I think tells you something. I think what it tells you is what, what happens is when people feel more profoundly connected to the people around them in the world, it's a learning experience. And they try to sustain that in their lives. It goes back to the lesson from Portugal. Portugal, in a completely different way, made people feel more connected to the society they lived in. Now, they did it by helping them in, obviously, a totally different way. But I think these very different routes to recovery, the underlying thing that does connect them is connection. It's feeling more connected. So what I I think we shouldn't do with the psilocybin debate is act like and you're not doing this, uh, I know the conference you're organising is not doing this, some people are talking like it's a kind of magic drug that makes the addiction go away. That is not true, that's actually quite a dangerous way of talking. What it does is give you an insight, if you build on that insight and you're given help and love and support to build on that insight, will help you to recover.
3: While we're here, Amy, what is your convention?
6: Oh, you put me on the spot now. Um, so it's kind of, it is linked when you're saying about um, psychedelic uh drug use a lot of um, psychedelic drugs can actually well see the term drug is actually very loaded as well we sort of talk about psychedelic substances psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms and there are countless studies which show that it can help tobacco withdrawal also um, MDMA which for those of you who don't know is ecstasy Uh, the clinical MDMA is very non-toxic it can help there's countless studies that have been done um way sort of back in the 60s and more recent ones um, and it's shown that it can help people suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder along with um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy basically and it's shown people that have had um, treatment-resistant PTSD for say like 20-30 years have had like a 16-week course of psychedelic uh, psych, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and then at the end of that they've been shown not to have PTSD anymore, like they've been classed as not, not suffering from it anymore, which is absolutely profound because these people have had maybe like 20 years of all different types of therapies, all different types of antidepressants, and then they've had a 16-week course of MDMA. And I can't remember the exact percent, but this particular study was, it was just amazing, you know, the, the rate of people that actually recovered. So um, MDMA, LSD was used a lot back in uh, the 50s and 60s. And it was, so you've got LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, and then you have various plant medicines, which there's kind of a renaissance. Lots of people go to South America, use ayahuasca, improve their lives, become sort of more spiritual. Um, and yeah, so there's lots and lots of plant medicines around the world that, which are also used. Um, and the fact that m- all of them are basically illegal, so you can also argue that the drug war is, uh, people are using these harder substances because maybe they don't have access to psychedelics as well mushrooms grow in this country you can go and pick them but once they're picked it's illegal Um, so you're criminalizing somebody that's just sort of wanting to expand their consciousness if you take magic mushrooms you're not going to go and stab anybody or there's no sort of like drug gang related crime with magic mushroom use but it's still illegal and people are being denied access to these things So the conference I organize, uh, or co-organize I should say, is called Breaking Convention and um, a lot of psychedelic researchers will be, anyone who's anyone in psychedelic research will be there basically. Uh, Matthew Johnson, who you spoke about, he spoke for us last year um, and he does some great work and yeah, it's on July at Greenwich University. Um, It's the 30th of June, 1st and the 2nd and it is a really, really great event and it's, amazing the findings and the, and the coming out of these studies to do with psychedelic drugs and it impacts because we're talking about addiction tonight and all of these substances are you know can help treat addiction but they can't because they're illegal at the moment and the people that are using these drugs within research it's kind of there's sort of a stigma around that as well it's very hard to get funding for these studies as well so there's the argument there that that is making the situation worse and making more people become addicted to substances that are not good for them see yeah (laughs) i think
3: a round of applause for amy there i think and if you go to a cast.com slash stop and search i'll put the link up to breaking convention and then that way if you want to get tickets you can go there Uh, have we got any more questions oh we got loads me. right we better try and condense these down a bit right
5: this one's kind of linking into the whole um, the mic. issue. The mic. I think work? so. Yeah, there we go. So it's linking kind of into the, the issue around um, the psychedelic discussion, the use that they can be used in therapy. How can we break the fear that is around drugs at the moment and really encourage discussion in the wider public and really get that appetite for actually discussing drug policy? Because at the moment... Friends and family that I talk to about drugs, they think I'm crazy. They actually think I'm a mad, drug-induced person that just wants drugs. Not at all. And, and it's, it's hard to break that. And how are we going to do that all together? That's my question.
3: Thank you very much. How do we do that?
4: <laughs> so there's politics here, which is occurring to me when I was hearing about sort of psychedelics and stuff like that, which is one of the things that's going on here is is as a society i think people want their societies to work differently like some people are not very comfortable with any drugs including alcohol and they kind of want their society to be completely abstinent of drugs and they have a philosophy that says that altering your consciousness is not the sort of thing that they approve of and want to want to be around no 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 i'm 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 saying that there are large segments of the community who don't even want that don't want any alcohol. Are completely abstinent. I know a lot of them because I go to yoga. So, um, <laughs> so you, you you you've got that section, and then on the other end, you've got people who will say actually using psychedelics is something that everybody should do. You know, in the same way that you know, have people who eat meat and people who are vegans, and you know, they 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 have a. It's not just they have their own views, but they want the, the interesting thing is they also want to impose that on the whole of society. Uh, and and then there's a question about something. The, the really philosophical question is there are people who want to impose a collective view of what normal behaviour is in, and they want to have normal. They want to have normal in their society, whether it's like everyone doing psychedelics or nobody doing psychedelics. And there are people who basically think think it should be a Big old free for all. And so your question is actually really right because the question is like the problem at the moment is no one's even having the conversation about which of those things we want to, and no one's even navigating those issues in any way. And I think um, you should, should give a shout out to Volt Fass. Uh, to, uh, Where are they? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's, a, there's a couple <laughs> at the back, uh, which is a sort of a magazine and uh, an organization promoting a debate about drugs policy that is, is well worth uh, thinking about. And, they're, and they're, their stance on this is, is very interesting because. Uh, it's not, a, you know, in a sense, it's a broad church. It's accepting that there should be a everyone should be allowed to have their voice on this, from the prohibitionists through to the people who uh, want to legalise absolutely everything. And so I think the way to do it is to recognise, is to be inclusive in our conversations about drugs, to recognise that just because someone doesn't hold a different belief to me, that doesn't mean I can't carry on having the conversation. So we need to learn to have civil, inclusive conversations. And, of course, that doesn't just apply to drug policy. You know, the problem we have in terms of Uh, in our society is that we have uh, large fissures opening up of people with different beliefs and different values and people are unable to communicate across the values divide uh, unable to have those conversations Uh, how we learn to do that I think is by us all first of all examining our own beliefs and our own values and recognizing them trying to see them for what they are and then Understanding that sometimes that's going to make certain conversations difficult, but still sort of just persevering with it Not always trying to persuade someone of your point of view as well. Sometimes thinking actually Sometimes I'm going to be open to be persuaded of other points of views, so it's a really profound question Because it requires all of us to change so in a sense that's a social movement and millions of conversations happening uh, you know, in the UK and, and around, and people demonstrating that behavior will be the way that other people learn it. But I don't think it's going to be an easy, a, easy way, easy, easy journey.
2: Uh, I, I, yeah, I think it's people having, I mean, I'm extremely anti drugs, but I'm even more anti the war on drugs. <laughs> I think it's each to their own. And for, I, I always think it's, um, and it sounds quite a strong thing to say, but better the devil, you know. Like, I think you should know what's going on and be open and then it can be regulated, then it can be checked on and people aren't going to take something they think is one thing and actually it's completely something else or get stabbed on the way to get it because they don't feel the only safe time to go and get it is in the night hours, you know. I think always if, if it's illegal, well, let's open it up and look at it for a start and then people can make thought out decisions about it and people can understand it a whole lot better.
0: I think, I think uh, Livy and Tom put it really well. And, you know, it, it's really important to say, I think there's two things, and I sometimes feel conflicted about this. The first thing is, you can be totally anti-drugs and against the war on drugs, exactly as Livy is saying. I don't use any drugs... I don't even drink alcohol. If you met my family, you'd understand why. Um, the, the, you know, I, I never want to use any of those substances. Uh, you know, um, and I'm completely against the war on drugs. No one would find it weird that I'm against, I don't drink alcohol, and I'm against alcohol prohibition. Right? No one's going to go, what a strange position. You know, um, uh, uh, you know, it's not for the yoga. As you can see from looking at me, I don't do yoga. Uh, but the, um, so I think that that's really important. And I used to say that as my. The, my sole thing on that thought on that, and then when I went to interview Carl Hart, who's a professor at Columbia University, who's one of the most important voices on this. Also, if anyone wants to Google him, the hottest man in the world. Um, the, uh, no, seriously, Google him. Uh, the, uh, actually, this will be really embarrassing if he listens to this now. But anyway, never mind, uh, I think he thinks that I'm really stupid because, like with everyone else, I like to think I ask like quite acute questions. With him, I just go, "You're <laughs> so right, Carl." Whenever he says something. <laughs> anyway. He said to me, uh, while I was simpering, that um, actually, you can say that, but if people believe that drugs are almost magical substances that can hijack people and turn them into zombies, they won't be receptive to that argument. You also have to challenge the mythical views about drugs, which is not to say there aren't really significant harms. Of course there are, uh, as I've seen in my own family. But I think you do... You, you, you'd have to change that. I think Tom said such an important point as well about talking to people respectfully. When I, when I And this is an unusual debate in that respect. If I argue with, like, a homophobe, right, I'm going to argue that you should treat gay people equally. They might disagree. Ultimately, we just don't agree on something really, really basic. Actually, interestingly, when you talk to prohibitionists, I don't find it's like that. When I say, why are you in favour of prohibition, the war on drugs, what most people say is, you don't, I don't want people to become addicted And I don't want kids to use drugs. To which my absolutely sincere response is, I couldn't agree with you more. You're totally right. The only disagreement we have is about how we get there. And then you get into an argument about, Okay, well, we can copy the places that have failed, the United States, massive and growing drug problem, or we can copy the places that have succeeded, like Portugal and Switzerland, significantly declining drug problem. So I think Tom's totally right. Um, And this is an unusual debate in that respect, um, that you, we can be especially respectful of prohibitionists because they're actually right in what they want. Now, of course, there are some people who just think intoxication is evil. Mysteriously, I've noticed a lot of those people do drink alcohol, but okay. You know, um, the, the, you know, they think intoxication is evil or they have implicitly racist views or whatever. And of course, we disagree with that. But I actually don't think that's what drives most of the drug war in Britain. And I think we can actually engage them. And that is why, not just to give one more plug, LEAP is so important because LEAP can talk to people. You know, there is... People are so much more receptive to an authority figure giving an argument against chaos than someone they think is a kind of lefty hippie, right? <laughs> they just do. Now, I like both sides, <laughs> but you know, the, the, but I do think we need to challenge those those magical views about drugs. And it's kind of depressing to see how bad the debate has been about spice, how deep those ideas, how deeply those ideas are, are 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 rooted.
4: I wonder if we have enough people as well who have. Uh, use drugs. Who are talking about it uh, and talking about their own experiences of drug use? You know, it's pretty difficult. You know, do I do I sit here? You know, I'm I'm sitting here. I you know I work a lot with the police and law enforcement and politicians. You know, how far can I go in sort of confessing what I've done and what it did to me? <laughs> uh, and, and and the truth is, you know, I've I've taken some drugs. Um, and you know, do do enough people do that? because in a sense if you know we, we actually kind of know that you know our former prime minister def- you know, definitely took drugs didn't he we all know he took drugs uh, slander um, we know that the chancellor uh, did uh, a famous photo that no one ever found uh, there are lots of examples of people who've reached senior positions um, who have who have taken drugs it's and a sort of bad thing they ever did yeah and, and and but in a sense there's still but there's a huge segment of society who doesn't who don't think that normal people take drugs because people are in their bubbles. It goes back to the point we were talking about before. So how do we break down the bubbles? We just Maybe we all need to be a bit more transparent about our own experiences.
0: Tom, that is such an important point. And I think part of the problem is that prohibition creates this distorting lens, right? Because if you guys, any of you after this event, go out and get bladded tonight, right? You might say on Facebook tomorrow, oh, went out last night, had two great bottles of wine, you know. You're not going to say on Facebook tomorrow, went out last night, had five great lines of Coke. You know, you're you not going to say that for obvious reasons, right? And I think we end up with this weird, distorted picture. Imagine if the only picture you had of alcohol was like, you know, Stevenage City Centre on a Saturday night. You'd be like, oh, my God, this drug is horrific, right? We've got to stop this. Um, and unfortunately, what we have with the prohibited drugs is all people see... Is the worst possible manifestations of those drugs, and it's a really difficult one to beat. It's actually one of the things that people said to me in in, in Portugal was after the decriminalisation, after they started, people could have a very different kind of conversation. People were like, "You too? I never knew." You know when, and so I think in the context of prohibition, frankly, I would counsel people not to talk honestly. You know, you don't want your future employer googling you and seeing that you. You know, I, to be honest, I wouldn't on- urge people to have an honest conversation if I cared about them. If I hated them, I might. Um, you know, if I had an honest... Because it, it could really fuck up your life. It's something as simple as when you go to the United States and they stop you at the border, they can say to you, have you used any illegal drugs? And they can Google you. And if you've said yes, they'll turn you back, right? It's happened to people I know. So we can't have an honest conversation in the context of prohibition. We also can't have an honest conversation with our children, but that's a different different thing.
7: Um,
1: I have a question for Neil? Um, you spoke earlier about your uh, skill in policing, one of your few skills. I work in branding, so I have to work with alcohol brands, fast food brands, chocolate brands, confectionery, like and alcohol as well. So I have to level with myself my sort of moral compass. And I was wondering how did you level the idea that you might be putting a potential person in danger by encouraging them to reduce their sentence?
3: That was my question. That's a good question.
5: Yeah, well, for me, um, the end always justified the means. So whatever action I was doing, I always uh, considered in detail the consequences and then balanced those against the benefit. So every single thing I did, I was making an ethical decision, which is why it became such a profound conclusion for me when after years and years of manipulating people and justifying that to myself, that I was catching the bad guys, always catching the bad guys. So eventually when I came to the conclusion that not only was the work that I was doing was futile because there is always plenty of drug dealers to step up into the shoes of those that I was putting in prison, um, but that actually my actions and the actions of my fellow police officers in in that sphere were making the entire market more violent because the more successful we were and we're always striving to be more successful then there is an automatic pushback and that is an increase in violence um and that gets more competitive as well so yeah when i was in the cell as you, as, as you referred to um it was it was about managing each individual situation and, and actually there are police officers who are now specialists it's it's A very small number of police officers now who handle informants. And they are actually brilliant at managing um, covert sources. They're really, really good. Unfortunately, the the sophistication of their craft and their expertise becomes quite empowering for them. So when I have spoken to people who run covert sources um, in the last couple of years, they're very hard to convince that however, however well they do it, it's still never going to...
8: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue.
0: Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
3: Who else has got a question? Right, I think we might be able to get you all in. If you can keep them fairly succinct, if that's all right. I'll go this way.
1: Uh, okay. Um, there seems to be like a lot of conflation of different complex uh, issues. Like, I'm not saying it won't work. It's worth a shot at this point. But maybe one of you can comment. I, I think drugs do, are not the same as prostitution or sex work. One is like an inanimate object, one is uh, a person, you know. Uh, The arguments against like uh, consuming alcohol is not the same. (laughs) So, long story short, can you comment on like uh, how you would compare or not compare these two things? Like uh, in your policy approach, sorry.
4: So so I'll I'll, I'll, I'll happily take that in a sense. The, The commonality is people want stuff. And other people can provide it. And uh, people do deals uh, to to meet those needs and wants. And so I I completely agree that they're all different. And we need a different regulatory approach for everything, primarily depending on the risks and the harms that we're particularly concerned about and how big we think they are and our capacity to influence behaviour in society and our desire to do so. Cigarettes, I think, is something we have to think about really seriously because cigarettes were, you know, initially released as a sort of, you know, stress relieving thing to be cool, uh, you know, pushed very hard before you knew it. Most of the country smoked. Um, It's taken us decades to roll back from that mistake. But where we are now, we've actually got, you know, low and falling, uh, levels of, uh, tobacco use is a massive killer. I'm pleased that people aren't smoking as much as they used to. But what we've got, we've got plain packaging now coming in. Um, that seems like a really good idea. Um, I, wouldn't mind seeing plain packaging on alcohol, too. I know, it put you out of a job. But it may make sense for certain types of alcohol. Having said that, you've got quality differences and taste differences in alcohol that mean that, that may not be appropriate, actually. So you're probably right that you need a slightly different approach. Because... Frankly, if I'm just told that there's lager and there's lager, you know I'm going to be a bit upset because I'm always going to end up with Carlsberg and I'm not going to be very happy. Um, or, or, you know, if, if I want my craft, you know, I want to go out to East London and get my funky craft ale, I, you know, I can't. I just have to ask for ale and it's going to be my standardised ale product. That's going to be rubbish. Um, so I think that we we have to be thinking about this Differently, you know, we have to be very careful about what we're doing because they are all different, and we do need to think about the products and services differently and how we can regulate them. But we have to learn the lessons from what we've done in terms of effective regulation and what's worked or what hasn't. I'm, you know, gambling is a, is a big issue that, um, you know, I don't think we've really learned any lessons about at all, and there's a lot of problem gambling going on that's got huge harms around it, as well as a lot of harmless punting and and fun.
0: Uh, uh, on smoking, I. <laughs> I recently found a photograph of my mother, when I, me and my mother when I was a baby. She's breastfeeding me, smoking and resting the ashtray on my stomach. And uh, when I showed this to her, she said, you were a difficult baby, I needed that fucking cigarette. Um, but in terms of the prostitution debate, um, I, think it's like really, I think you're totally right, and I'm um, very uncomfortable. This is not what Tom does at all. He's, in fact, specifically not to in his book, but the... I'm very uncomfortable when people analogise legalising drugs with legalising prostitution, but there's a key fact about, because yeah, heroin doesn't have feelings, women do. Um, but there's a really crucial fact about um, prostitution and drugs that I think is really worth bearing in mind. When Switzerland legalised heroin and prescribed it to people who were addicted, street prostitution ended in Switzerland. It stopped. Turns out women don't want to fuck random strangers for money, right? Who knew? But I think it tells you something really profound about prostitution. Partly, I mean, there's a huge and complicated debate about prostitution, as you know, but but I think that tells us something really profound. Before we argue about the merits of legalised prostitution, let's prescribe heroin to every woman who wants it and needs it and give her love and support to turn her life around, and we'll find that a lot of prostitution stops. Not all, not
1: all. We have a very powerful media in this country with regards to influencing policy. You're all journalists. Um... I personally found the drugs map of Britain to be very sensationalistic in the way it depicted drugs in this country. How do you think we can shift the rhetoric away from something which is entertainment-based and very sensationalistic to something which influences policy in a positive way?
2: I that's such a hard one, because obviously the way that um, things sell and entertainment in um, newspapers, that big, bold headlines sell. And that, that's the tragedy of it. That's what people want to will tune in to watch. Um, I made one episode of Drugs Map of Britain, which was heroin haters. And my, what I wanted to do in that is present the case that drugs have been problematic to this area. And these voices were going ignored. Now, the longer you ignore a voice, it's like someone's tapping on your door. If you ignore it, they're going to start tapping louder and louder and louder. And eventually, they're going to scare the crap out of you when they come bursting into your living room. And that's what I believe these lads were doing. No one was listening to them. No one was cleaning up these needles. And the people that were suffering because of this were these heroin users. And that's what I wanted to show. And that was my episode of Drugs Map of Britain. So I can't really talk about the other episodes.
3: It's difficult, in not it, Livvy, because I've got filmmaking credits as well, and there's a balance that you have to do between marketing and then bringing out the right amount of information, and it's such a tricky balance to strike. I mean, how do you do that in your field?
2: It's incredibly hard, because believe me, I'm constantly pitching to the channels and saying, like, I think I, this is a big issue because I live near it, or I've seen it, or people are talking to me about it, and I, it matters, you know? But if it doesn't tick certain boxes, then the people who are the powers that be won't commission it. And so it's finding a way that it will appeal to people and get that message across. And everything else I don't, then hopefully I can self-fund it and do it off, off my own back, you know.
1: That wasn't an attack on, on no, your no, episode, no, no, so, No, no, uh, no, no,
2: totally. But it's just it's, it's so sad that at the end of the day, I hate even referring to TV as entertainment especially in the nature of the things I do, because obviously you're on the front line of things and it can be horrific seeing... But then what's picked for the programmes <laughs> is someone else's decision, and it, it's really hard, and that, that's something eventually when I have lots of money and <laughs> so on, I'll be able to self-fund things and make those choices myself.
1: I also meant that comment with, like, the media generally. So you mentioned the depiction of, of um, spice addicts as zombies. That's something that's been depicted widely in the Murdoch press. Across all of his papers, he's probably the most influential man in in the British media. How can we stop that hitting the papers on a daily basis being the debate? How can we alter that? What would you think?
0: The society can civilise the media. No newspaper talks about gay people the way every newspaper did when I was 16, right? What happened? All of you, you know, maybe not all of you, a lot of you, you know... Changed your minds or supported gay people and opened your hearts. You know, um, movements of ordinary people can civilise the society and change it. We don't talk about non-white people the way... You know, watch any of the sitcoms from the 70s where a black neighbour moves in next door. It's unthinkable now. Why? Because British people civilised the media, right? We wouldn't tolerate that now. If you screened one minute of Love Thy Neighbour, we'd burn down ITV, right? Um, because, because we became better people. And society's become better through movement, well, through ordinary people persuading the other ordinary people they know uh, and becoming thereby becoming extraordinary people, and through movements of people. And one of the things we, we, again, and I keep saying this, but one of the reasons why I think LEAP is so encouraging, Vault Fast is so encouraging, so we are starting to, and Transform is so fantastic, we're starting to get a, ref, a movement for drug reform in this country that can save the lives of a lot of those 3,000 people who die every year and it 's a, it's a broad based democratic movement that will do that
4: so I, I faced this real conundrum when I, when I started writing my book, it was about seven years ago and I already spent about uh, sort of five years working on uh, crime policy and different guides. so I sort of thought I knew what I was talking about when it comes to crime and what causes it and what we can do about it. you know I spent serious time uh, in doing this stuff, looking around and going to prisons, going to police, and all that sort of stuff, as I did my work. I was gradually able to make less and less strong dogmatic arguments that were really, really clear in one direction. This is because the nature of the world and evidence is complex and nuanced, and the answers are often found in detail. You can find clear answers, but often the route to them is complicated and you have to open different doors. These stories to tell for writers, for journalists, for media. There's a real art to the actual, uh, to the job of trying to tell something truthfully, respecting the evidence, while it's still being really clear, simple, and compelling in sort of retail format. And I feel a bit sympathetic towards journalists who have 10 minutes to write their copy. Uh, And I'm not surprised that they immediately fall back on tropes and stereotypes and misconceptions uh, Because they don't have all that time to craft arguments But I also think that there's something interesting about all of us in the way that we seek out that simple truth The way we think we really want black and white answers all of us, and that's true I think that's true on, on the prohibitionist argument as well and so there's a challenge to all of you who may believe in prohibition to recognize that obviously there's many different flavors of getting rid of prohibition and there's lots of nuance about how we do it and so we should have open debates and discussion I think the media is nowhere near ready to create a world where people don't have black and white views Um, and I don't think we're quite ready for it yet and the media is not really ready for it yet
0: Just just very quickly, there's one thing I think we could really push back on. It's a relatively small thing, but I think it's really toxic. I'm actually meant to bring it along with me, and I completely forgot. There was a headline in the Times, I noticed the other day. There was some terrible case. I'm going to get some of the details wrong. But uh, two people who happened to have addiction problems, their baby had died. And the headline was something like, drug addicts leave baby to die, right? If two, let's say, Jewish people had left their child to die... Uh, it would be unthinkable that the headline would be Jews leave baby to die, right? There is no other group where we would identify them by that marker in that way. It's unthinkable, right? Imagine, you know, gays leave baby to die, right? It would be, that would be unthinkable. We should be pushing back against the use of drug addict as a kind of stigmatising label as if it applies to whole groups, when actually... There are lots of drug addicts in Britain who have children, some of them are not good parents, some of them are good parents, and virtually none of them leave their child to die, and we don't talk about other groups that way.
4: We're even worse at this on crime, so, I mean, if I could have a, you know, a million pounds, or just a pound would probably make me a millionaire, uh, For the, a pound for every time that you, know, you get a headline that mentions the immigrant status of the person who's committed the crime, as if... It's immigrants who are committing all the crime in the UK, whereas actually when you look at the studies, you find that economic migrants in the UK tend to commit slightly less crime than people of similar wealth from, from the UK. Uh, you find that I mean, there's, a, there's been an interesting phenomenon where asylum seekers in, who've been looked at in a, in a really good study by um, Steve Machin from the LSC. Um, they found that asylum seekers were actually committing a little bit more acquisitive crime. But then when you looked at actually how much money they were given to get by on you started to realise this was way below anything anyone on benefits would get. So literally it was not subsistence uh, levels of income. So there was a sort of a, a reason why that might be, why it might be going on. So we we do find some labels more important to apply to people than others. And in crime, this leads to huge misconceptions. So you suddenly think that your solution to crime is going to be to crack down on immigration. Well that could be exactly the opposite of the solution. We should be maybe attracting, trying to attract more uh, economic migrants because people who try and leave their country in search of better prospects and better life are normally pretty with it and they can organise themselves to get, get things together and, and to make better lives for themselves. So I think these things, these labels do drive really, really pernicious uh, sort of uh, behaviours and, and policies.
7: Right, we've got a question down here. Um, yeah, just to follow on um, briefly from what the gents said back there, you know, mainstream media and how that broadcast drug users, vilifies them, demonizes them. I think it's very hard to stop overnight, but I just wanted to say that I think social media is a big, big um, thing. It's our tool. It's the way we can take it back. I work very closely with um, homeless people. I cut their hair, tell the story on Instagram. I work with a lot of addiction. And, um, and it really works when you humanize the issue, when you bring it down to one person and start from there. I think that's where empathy is formed, and I think the real naysayers for drug use in general, I think it's a lack of empathy, really, that's stopping, um, I don't know, whatever it is in their brain that they can't understand, and I don't think we should be mean to them, it's about how can we show them, and that leads me on to the question, I think, so with empathy to the people who are really in control here, making policy changes, to the real naysayers, which I've seen some of you guys, Johan especially, debate on the bigger panels, like, how do we get them to understand more? How do we really kind of, like, plant that seed of empathy is, because it only seems that sometimes they understand what it's their sister, their daughter, their son who's experienced addiction. I'm very much talking about addiction here, not recreational drug use. How do we get them to understand better on a bigger kind of level? How do we provide them with that empathy to be able to kind of, um, to, because I believe when they do, I think that's when we'll get real change.
2: I, mean, I, th- I think it's so hard and the tool my former media is bring it to their living room and humanise people, but again, then you're constrained to broadcasters and so on. But I think if something's in your living room, if it's entered your home, whether you like it or not, you're confronted with a face and a human being. And um, I mean, through working in, in uh, some of the um, productions I have and working on different drug programmes and so on, it's, when you meet someone, it's so different to what you believe um, or what you've your preconceptions about someone as soon as you're confronted with them like you you, you said you cut uh, people's hair homeless hair you know and and you meet people and you get to hear their story so i think it's as much as we can is bringing face to face people being confronted with you know who people that they've already judged but,
4: but we have to, and we have to do this on a on a really broad scale because if i'm honest i know a lot of politicians who understand and have the empathy and make the effort to go and understand people's problems. Politicians are much better at that than you might think, actually. They have people coming into their surgeries each week with real problems. They un- and, and so a lot of our politicians who we think of as massively out of touch are sometimes more in touch than people who work in other bits of public service, than journalists, than loads of other people. But when it comes to them making policy, they feel incredibly constrained by what they think they can get by a the press and b the public and so i think it has to be this broad scale movement And i love what you're saying about social media and individual stories because i think that that's definitely part of the answer but it's basically what we're really saying is something that's both really uplifting and positive but also quite hard which is that we all need to change the way that we think about uh, drugs addiction and lots of other different social issues if we're actually going to get any progress
0: yeah uh, i agree with one of, the, one of the reasons why I wrote Chasing the Scream is the stories of people, right, from Billie Holiday and the story of how she was stalked and killed by the man who launched the war on drugs right up to the present, was because that's, I think that's the only way you change people's minds. I, I kept meeting, for the journey I did for the book, going to all these different countries, I kept meeting these people who were really profoundly stigmatised, like a, my friend Chino Hardin, who's a crack dealer in Brooklyn, or Bud Osborne, who was a homeless street addict in Vancouver. And those two, for example, are two of the wisest and most amazing people I've ever met. And I, as I got to know them and spent a lot of time with them, I thought the average British person, the average American, if you met Chino, if you met Bud, you would not say, let them die, I don't give a shit, right? When you realise they're people like you with hopes and dreams, actually, they're really good people. They're really... They were, I mean, those two are particularly... Amazing people, and some of the people I wrote about, like Rosalio, are definitely not amazing. um, Although I do think he's a victim in other ways. So I do think it's... I think we're, we're in total agreement. It's human stories empathy is what what changed people's minds about gay people it wasn't sitting them down and telling them statistics or you know no, no one changed if statistics changed people my people's minds donald trump would not be president of the united states right uh, and we'd be doing a lot about global warming it's it's human emotional stories that meet their that meet their desire to be better people because one of the things i think one of the reasons why people change their minds about gay people is saying you know We've got two options, right? We can be horrible to gay people, and that will damage us, right? That that will curdle you. It will make you hateful, often, in many cases, to your own children. Or you can be loving and open, and you will feel better as well. I did a phone-in, and someone said to me... Um, uh, it was actually an Australian phone-in. And someone said to me something like, why should I care about drug addicts? And I was going to do the kind of, oh, it saves you money, or, you know, oh, it... Um, you know, all sorts of the arguments, you know, a lower crime. And I thought, I think, I hope I said this to him, I think I did. I said, because one day you're going to be vulnerable, right? You might not become addicted, maybe you'll just get old, maybe all sorts of things, maybe you'll get sick, right? And if you've gone through life being hateful to people who are vulnerable and being cruel and spiteful, you're going to expect that people are going to be cruel and spiteful to your vulnerabilities, and that is no way to live. If we are kind and loving, we'll be happier, and and so I think an argument, a, that kind of argument, that actually it's not just about saying have compassion for them because they'll be better. Have compassion for them because you'll be better. Every human baby, the most disturbing sound to any human baby is another baby crying, right? We are absolutely hardwired for empathy. It is the most... Human beings would not have survived as a species on the savannas of Africa if we were not hardwired to defend and protect each other. So I think it's about that, that, that keying into that very deep impulse that will make them feel better as well as making obviously other people feel better.
3: I think we got a question from Ronnie Cowan down
9: here. <coughs> I was, I was uh, going to follow on the point of what, what politicians do uh, and how you change their attitude, and um, I actually agree with Tom. There's, there's lots of good MPs who have people coming through surgeries who have got addiction, but the, the, the back end of their problem, what they come to you with, is uh, an addiction to alcohol, uh, drugs, gambling, whatever, and it's ruining their life for them. And a lot of MPs I've sat there and talked with understand that and empathise with it, but the, pr- the problem you've got in trying to, to change policy is that your UK government in Westminster is absolutely entrenched in structure. And it loves structure and it loves enforcement. We love enforcement so much that we've exported it around the world. We like to see ourselves as a world's policeman. And it's easy to say, we can control this. is like to be in control. They like to be able to control their police force. They like to be able to control their armed forces. You can walk up the road from Westminster and go and knock on the door of the MOD. And it's a very structured, very organised place. And you can tell who does what job because they're wearing uniforms. And it's very easy to understand. It also, the back end creates jobs and creates industry. And we tend to like that as well. The problem with, and Tom again touched on earlier on, it's this difficulty. When people start looking into very complex problems, they don't find very easy solutions And we've got one way of making legislation. We walk through a lobby and you either say aye or you say no. And it's that binary choice. And if you look at very complex issues as in how do we change the war against drugs, you've got to form that in a way where someone can make that choice. And we've never got around to doing that yet. We haven't even started doing that yet. Because in that place, people are so used to the structure in which they work. But I fundamentally believe there is a grassroots movement in there. There are enough people who are taking on board this information, and the only way you change them is by talking to them. I, I got involved in this through a leap movement. Uh, it was a, it was it was April first It was April Fool's Day. Was it, April Fool's day? No, it was a leap day. Of course, it was. A. <laughs> That went by me for about six months until I went back and realised what was happening. Uh, I, they, these guys came to Westminster and spoke to me and it was the personal stories from people who'd been there, seen it, done it. It wasn't other politicians talking to me. It was people from Anyone's Childhood. It was people from uh, FBI, CIA, whoever. Uh, and, and, and then I read Neil's book and I've read Johan's book and I'm thinking, I've not read Tom's yet, but I'll get around to it. Uh, 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 and uh, and that's that. it's a personal story where you get to people and like, you've got to build up the grassroots up And I will finish on this point. You've got an election coming up on the 8th of June. Ask every single one of the candidates, what do you know about this? And find out what their depth of knowledge actually is. And I'm hoping you'll find I'm wrong, but I think you'll find an incredible lack of understanding in most people.
0: Can I say a small thing about it, Jason? Politicians are as good as the pressure that's put on them. If you're a politician, you're constantly making a calculation. If I make this decision, how much shit will I get and how much praise will I get, right? And if the praise outweighs the shit, they'll probably do it. Um, at the moment, if you do the right thing about drug policy, you'll get a little bit of praise from people like us and a whole lot of shit from the Daily Mail and all the forces that we're talking about. But we can change that balance. No one even argued for gay marriage until my friend Andrew Sullivan wrote it, a book about it in 1995 because it was unthinkable. It was regarded as mad. When he published that book in 1995, when everyone in this room was alive, he was regarded as a nutter. Even gay people said he was a nutter, right? And he lived to see the introduction of gay marriage and the Supreme Court quoting his book when they introduced gay marriage. So you can change those calculations really quickly, um, but it's about that. It's the, it's the pressure we put on them, right? It, it's not about... Sometimes people say to me, and, and they mean it nicely and I'm grateful, but they say, oh, I liked your book, I gave it to my politician, or like, oh, you know, we should speak the truth to power. And I always think what Noam Chomsky said, he said I want to fucking speak the truth to power. Henry Kissinger knows the truth. He just doesn't give a shit, right? The, the, it's not about speaking the truth to power. It's about speaking the truth to everyone else so that we then change the people in power. Uh, now, either change their minds or we literally choose different people, which in case of Theresa May, I hope you will. I doubt it, but you never know. <laughs>
3: That's quite often a discussion we have, isn't it? Is it bottom-up or top-down? And and I believe in bottom-up. I think that the social change comes and then it puts pressure on them.
0: It it doesn't work when it's top-down. I went to... I met loads of politicians who introduced drug reform, right? And everywhere where it succeeded, it was because there was a bottom-up movement. The country where they did it in a top-down way was in Uruguay, President Mejica incredible, astonishingly great man who got well ahead of public opinion. And it, it didn't really work because if you don't have people behind you, that it'll just be sabotaging. It'll be got, got rid of by the next people. It's got to be a, a bottom-up way. Now, it's nice if the people at the top are... If you're pushing on an open door, that's great, right? We want the people at the top to be the right people. But the, but it, it only works if there's broad-based support for it. Imagine if, I don't know, James Callahan had announced in 1978 he was going to introduce gay marriage, Right. People wouldn't even know what, it would have been absurd, right? It had to take the social change, it had to take the, the pressure from ordinary people, otherwise it wouldn't have worked.
4: And there are a series of interventions and, and sort of behaviour change experiences that we can look at in, in loads of different domains to learn from this. I mean, smoking cessation is, is one example in a sense of a mass movement where everyone changes their minds. They think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. They change. Seatbelts is another example. They're slightly different, but they are areas where... People would never have thought that not wearing a seatbelt was anyone else's business. What's this got to do with anyone else? But then gradually you sort of have this... A public information campaign. The difference here is the state is driving that. And this is what I want to say is that there is a social grassroots movement. There is also a responsibility on leaders to lead and create whatever small scale experiments or changes in attitude that they might want to see as well. So, what would that look like for drugs policy if we really did have a leader who was going to lead? Not force not suddenly mandate that they're going to change loads of things overnight, because I don't think that would work and the public wouldn't buy it, but how can they accelerate the process and make it a sort of 10, 15, 20-year journey towards a better policy outcomes um, rather than making that a sort of 15, 90-year journey, because we just don't have that long.
3: I I think I'm going to have to make an apology to people on questions. Henry's got his hand up, flagging down like mad. Uh, We have run massively over time, and people have got trains to get to, but Henry, quick... I was just going to
1: add one one extra thing to that, which was which was about the the top down or bottom up thing, because of course Johan has raised the point of Portugal, as 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 being a kind of trailblazer, and Portugal's an interesting example because there it was a case that it it, it wasn't the population leading the change, it was actually the, the 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 people at the top thinking something needs to change, and that's why they handed it over to the scientists to some extent, and they let them take the lead on that. So it wasn't just from bottom up that that one came. So it can come from either way.
3: I don't know, uh, uh, wants oh, to uh,
0: just a very quick thing. I don't think that's quite right. What happened in Portugal? It goes back to saying by to, uh, Tom and Livy said what happened. In, I would say by the way, Henry's written a brilliant report today that you, you should all read. But the, the, um, what happened in Portugal was addiction was so widespread that everyone knew someone. So there was a cultural change in that way. It was a bit like the gay debate, actually, because just everyone knows a gay person, right? Um, So there was a social change. You're right, there was a kind of top-down element, but it was a top-down element in the context where they knew they wouldn't get a huge amount of pushback and they would actually hear a receptive audience. I don't think it's quite right to present... Yeah, do you know what I mean? I mean, I I understand what you're saying, but I don't think that's quite... I think Portugal was mostly a bottom-up cultural change that then the politicians and an urgent crisis that the politicians then kind of recognise.
3: That's a good place to wrap up on. Uh, Livy, from the places that you've seen, both in yeah. the Philippines, here, everything, do you think that there will be bottom-up, top-down? What way do you think it's going to go?
2: Bottom-up, definitely. It has to. It do you think to. that
3: it, in the Philippines, do you think that they got the same yeah, way... that I th- we...
2: they got rid of Marcos. Wow. and <laughs> They've got to get rid of Duterte. It's the only reason he's still going is because of that 80% popularity. And I think when people people realize and i think they're starting to realize already that it's the poor people that are getting killed it's not the drug lords it's the poorest of the poor like some of them don't even have shoes and they're the people that's his war on drugs oh come on
3: tom do you think top down bottom up Uh, it sounds I, i think i
4: agree it's a it's a shame that it's going to take so long for the people of the philippines to work out that what's going on is is not sensible i mean effectively what they're going to see is that the drug problem is still there and there are lots of people who've died and lives have been ruined. So I I hope that we are collectively uh, smart enough to start putting pressure on to to get change reform in in drug policy, in in crime policy, in a huge different range of areas, and it has to come bottom-up. But the politicians have to lead. They have to start saying, well, within the bounds and constraints of what the public will let us do, this is what we can do, so let's do it. And let's measure and assess and evaluate (coughs) what works and be honest about... What we find in terms of what works in reducing harms around illegal markets and what doesn't.
3: And Johan, oh sorry, Neil, I, I'll, I'll end on I'll end on Johan, so Neil. I was
5: just going to say that if you are listening to this podcast and you are persuaded by the things that's been said, you are part of that social movement, and I think we are all responsible for that.
3: That's a very good point. As Neil says, we're collectively involved in this, so if you want to pass in any information, as, as Johan said, pass on books, share podcasts, share films, it all helps. And Johan, final word to you. What do you think?
0: I think there's a layer of this which is going on in Britain right now, and it's always there with prohibition, which is what we do is we take the things we're afraid of, we take our fears and we project them onto these chemicals and we say... These chemicals are the cause of all these problems, and if only we got rid of the chemicals, we, we'd be all right again. So, you know, what have we got? Think about what's happening in Manchester Piccadilly, right? I mentioned my sister is a psychiatric nurse who works near there. You've got a big rise in mental health problems and really deep distress, and, they've, and our government has massively cut back uh, mental health services. So, You've got this crisis exploding, and, we, and there's all sorts of fears. We can feel that Britain is go into shit, right? We can feel there are really deep crises in our culture. Brexit is one manifestation of it, but there are a lot. And it's very tempting for us to... Because a drug is tangible, right? This, that deeper crisis, that malaise requires us to think so deeply about who we've become, what we've decided to value, how we treat each other. That it's so tempting to just... And I feel that temptation. You know, One of the reasons why I think the debate about the war on drugs is so charged Because if we're honest, it runs through the hearts of all of us. When I look at the people I love who've got addiction problems, I'm honest, there's a drug warrior in my head. There's a bit of me that thinks, I wish someone would just fucking stop you, right? These are not crazy thoughts. It's very tempting to, to do that, but at some point we have to make a decision. Do we want to imitate the places that have succeeded? Or do we want to imitate the places that have catastrophically failed? And at the moment we're imitating the failures and we've been imitating the failures for a really long time and it's helping us not think about our deeper crisis in Britain and um, and, 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 and that's that, we have to get out of this symbolic thinking and exactly into the kind of empathy that Livy's films do, do, do so well, that Neil's book does so well we have to get into the, uh, a deeper mode of thinking about the and that's the cru- solution not just to the addiction crisis but to the really deep crisis, you know, I, I, I'm not in Britain a lot of the time. And every time I come back, I think, well, next time I come back, it won't have got worse. And every time I get back, I'm like, Jesus, th- things are really bad, right? I've never known the mood in Britain to be like this. It's exceptionally ugly. In, in the United States, I've just seen how a really explicitly authoritarian leader can rise in a very angry and broken society. You know, we've just seen in the country nearest to us in France you know, the the number two who may win, I think it's unlikely, but it's possible. We're close to, you know, an actual fascist winning in the country next door. You know, we're in really dangerous times and we need, in order to engage with that, we have to deal, we have to engage with the deep sources of pain that are manifesting in all sorts of different ways. Some of them are manifesting in Trump, some of them manifesting in Brexit, some of them are manifesting in addiction. We have to have a different kind of conversation about our distress that's not about screaming at each other, that's not about abusing each other, that's not about shouting slogans at each other, but it's actually about connecting with each other. It's not just that, you know, Uh, the thing I always say is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. I think the opposite of the crisis we're in is connection. We're in such a crisis of deep disconnection at the moment. And we don't have to be. The answer is all around us in, in engaging with each other and thinking deeply about who we want to be.
3: So make sure that you buy Tom's book, watch Livy's films and share them, buy Neil's book, buy Johan's book. And if you want to buy this specific Johan book, it might be the last one he ever signs, given his TBs. <laughs> and thank you so much for persevering through that. You can present
0: this as my final word.
3: <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Guys. Give these guys a massive round of applause. <laughs> thank you very much for coming. So what can I say to that? I think I'm just going to give an outro of Radio silence because when you've got Johan Hari, Tom Gash and Livy Haydock on complete fine form in conversation, my words are going to sound like babbling nonsense, aren't they? So thank you so much for that. And can you come on every week? I think we can do that, can't we? So a few thank yous. So my name is Ad. Thank you so much for the artwork. And also John Harris. I've not thanked John before, but he does a lot of the Destruction Pieces Network social media. So do you see those little speaker quotes that come out, the little videos that scroll? That's John that does that. And he has his own podcast called The Dream Factory, which is a tremendous podcast. It's hilarious. It's all about films. Um, So make sure you go and listen to that. Give him some support because goodness knows he does enough for us. And Colt, Nicky the producer, the magical sound monkey, who we just chuck shortbread at and... uh, forget it exists half the time until he uh, produces a, an edited podcast for us. So thanks so much, Nikki. Make sure you go and listen to some of the other um, Stop and Search podcasts as well. We've got loads of guests. We've got some brilliant guests coming up. And why don't you suggest some guests to us as well? So get on the social media and tweet us at UKLeap and get on Facebook, UKLeap.org, and just give us some suggestions who you'd like to see on. And while we're on the subject of podcasts, of course, you've got to listen to the rest of the Distraction Pieces Network with the original Scroobiest Pip. Also, Hardcore Listing with Christian Stu, who I think are doing a Christmas special, so I'm going to definitely try and get to that. Christmas and Hardcore Listening. Listing. Why, why wouldn't you? And the phenomenal Say Why to Drugs, which Susie Gage has just launched the best education platform for drugs there is because it's unbiased. And, of course, Tuesday Night Joy Jim Smallman because I'm a wrestling fan. And I think that's it. So we'll catch you on the next Stop and Search, guys. Thank you so much again for listening. Bye.
2: Behind your
7: barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay Behind your barricades <laughs>
5: Where are true, southern street